Romans chapter, Romans, Romans. Wow, am I jumping the gun a little bit. Acts 28. Acts 28. I'm excited, but we're not there yet. Acts. Acts 28. Been almost a year. I don't know how many of you, how many of you back remember we started Acts? And almost, and almost a year, and been an exciting journey as we study through the history of the church. And the, the neat part is, you know, as we know that we're going we're gonna to look today, Lord willing, we'll get through Acts 28, and that's when Luke stopped writing, but that's not when the Holy Spirit stopped writing. The, the, the history of the church continues to be written, and the, the same Holy Spirit empowering these these men and women that we've been studying over the past year continues to move in and through us. And what a, what a blessing it's been. I know I, I've just, I've really enjoyed this study. And we wind it up today. We're in Acts 28. Last week, we looked at the fact that uh, Paul on board a, boarded a ship with 275 others. And they left the, a place called Fair Havens, and they were just going to take a little short journey so that they could winter in Phoenix, just like some of you. Yet, because they, they went against what Paul had said, Paul said, don't leave, we should stay here. They disregarded his counsel and got blown way off course. A major storm comes. Perhaps we could pop up that map here real quick. We looked at the storm that took them way past Phoenix where they, they desired to stop and kept on going out into the Mediterranean Sea. We talked of the, the, the peril that they faced. They're throwing all of their supplies overboard. They hadn't eaten for, for weeks and the, the ship is coming apart finally just off the, the coast of Malta. And we saw that the, the captain finally said, okay, those of you who can swim, jump in, swim. The rest of you grab debris and float ashore. And, it, and we saw last time that all of them reached safely. Now, we pick up now in chapter 28, verse 1, it says, when they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness for because of the rain and that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. Now, when we look at this, and, and the world would look at this story and say, man, those guys were lucky. Yeah, and it's so fortunate that, that they were able to all survive that. And, but guys, as Christians, we know there's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as fate or karma. Guys, it's the sovereign, providential hand of God that guided, that directed. I love the fact that Luke underscores this twice. He finishes chapter 27, look, and it so happened that they were all brought safely to land, starts out 28, when they had been brought safely through, brought safely through, guided, carried by the providential hand of God. And Paul never lost sight of that. Paul always understood that it was the Lord who would rescue, the Lord who would care, the Lord who would protect, and the Lord who would ultimately and finally bring him home. He said so in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We, we note this often, and it bears repeating. Guys, as followers of Jesus, as men and women of God in the will of God until God is done with us here, we're indestructible. 
And when he is done with us here, he will take us safely home. The same promise, the same thing that Paul stood on are the same promises we can stand on. And when we see and we're faced with these difficulties and trials and storms in our life, we trust the Lord to bring us through those or to bring us safely home. His providential hand. I love the fact that they land on this island here called Malta for a couple of reasons. Uh, the, the, it's interesting when we look at the, the name Malta, some commentators, it's, it's difficult to translate what the word Malta literally means, but some believe it means refuge, which what a, what a, what a, a neat picture that is. Here they arrive in this little island in the middle of this stormy sea, their ship totally coming apart, and they find this place of refuge. They find this place of safety and protection. And guys, when we face the storms and the, and the shipwrecks of our life, we understand that that place of safety and, and protection for us is in, again, the hands of the Lord. The psalmists knew this. Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Literally, that means abundantly available for help in our time of trouble. God is that. God is our refuge and strength. Therefore, he goes on to say, because of that, we will not fear. We don't have anything to worry about. We will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake and it's swelling, at its swelling pride. Guys, because God is that, we don't have to worry about what's going on around us. We don't have to stress and worry as the mountains fall into the sea, as the storms are raging. We keep our focus and our attention on Jesus. We run to him. He is our place of safety and protection. Now, while there's some disagreement about what Malta means, it wasn't called Malta in Paul's day. Malta is the island of what it's called now. Back then, it was, and literally, if you have a literal translation, it is Mylite. That was the name of the island then, and that means honey. I tell you, when I think of that, that brings me great comfort too, because when I think of honey, and especially in, in a biblical sense, I'm drawn to the story of Jonathan that's back in 1 Samuel chapter 14. He's been fighting a battle. He's been, he's been warring all day against the enemy, and he's tired. And he's, and he's worn out. And there's a side story in that, that his father Saul said that, you know, that anybody who ate during that time would be put to death, but he didn't know that. That's a side issue. But the point I want to make is he was, he was tired. He was worn out from the battle. And it says that he dipped his, got some honey. And when he put it in his mouth, it says his eyes brightened. He was refreshed. And guys, when we are in the battle, <laughs> There's only one place to come for refreshing. And that again is to the Lord. The world again looks everywhere and chasing after all sorts of other things to try to find satisfaction, to try to find refreshing, to try to find refuge where it can only be found in one place. God says in Psalm, in, in Psalm uh, 81, when he's speaking to the, the children of Israel, he says, you guys know this, but you keep going other places. You keep chasing after idols. You keep going all of these other places, looking for refuge, looking for safety, looking for satisfaction. And he says in verse 16, if you would simply come to me, I would feed you with the finest wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. I would give you everything you need if you will simply come to me. He says through the prophet Isaiah, why do you spend your money on things that can't satisfy you? 
Come, listen, eat. Delight yourself in abundance. And it's free, God says. Just come to me. I'm making a point of this because, guys, there's a whole world around us that is shipwrecked. And they're looking for a place of refuge. They're looking for refreshment. They're looking for that in places that can't offer it. And I I love this because here we have this little island in the middle of the ocean that they just so happen to land on. And there they find their refuge. There they find their refreshing. There they find a group of people that that extend extraordinary kindness above and beyond it. What that does, they just kind of extraordinary kindness. They saw their need. They saw that what, what there's only one way we could fix it. They're cold. They're wet. Let's build them a fire. Let's, let's, let's give them a place of warmth where they can come. They saw their need. They took care of it. And I don't think that this, that this can be glanced over. Notice it says, and received us all. 276 wet, cold men wash up on the beach and they took care of them all. Every one of them. And we don't know for certain how many at this time are Christians, but we know when they left the port initially, there was only three of them. Paul and his two, Luke and and one other guy, Christians. All the rest of them were Roman soldiers, prisoners, or sailors. Now, over the course of a couple of weeks, after watching everything that happens, and Paul, no doubt, ministering the gospel the whole day, I, I don't have any doubt many of them got saved. But all of them wash up on the beach, and notice they receive them all. And again, I make that point because, guys, the, the, though that island is out there in the middle of what seems like nowhere, it was there for a reason, and those people were on that island for a reason. Guys, we're on the corner of Greenway and Reams for a reason. And there are a whole lot of people out there that are shipwrecked, that are in the middle of a storm, that like we saw last week in chapter 27, verse 20, had given up all hope. Everybody aboard that ship except Paul gave up all hope. Absolute desperation, absolute despair, no hope. And guys, I guess I want to make this final point before we move off it. We need to be willing to embrace and accept anyone who washes up on the beaches of Calvary Chapel Surprise, whoever, anybody God would bring, that we would just welcome them, that this could be a place for them to find refuge, a place for them to find refreshment, a place where we can serve them as they come in and we understand and we embrace their their needs, the things that they're going through, the suffering that they have. We build them a fire. We make them feel warm. We make them feel at home. We see, as we continue on, they got the fire going. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However. He shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he, would, he was about to swell up and suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Interesting how fickle people are. 
murderer. Oh, he must be a god. But I want to, first of all, let's, let's put, point our attention at, at Paul first. I want to remind you guys, Paul's no young man at this time. And he has just been through everything that everybody else on that ship has been through. A couple of weeks with, with little to no food. The, 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 the little to no sleep as the ship has been rocked by this, this storm. He, had to, he, he was involved in throwing the cargo overboard. He had to swim to shore just like everybody else. And now they're here. Now they're sitting around the fire. And Paul doesn't pull the card that says, hey, guys, if it wasn't for me, none of you'd be here. Get up and get to work. Paul gets up and gets to work. Paul gets up and gathers a bundle of sticks to keep the fire going. He serves following after his master. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, washing the disciples' feet. Here, Paul, an example of washing feet as he gets up to serve. Gets up, gets a bundle of sticks, puts them on the fire, and what does he get for his efforts? He gets bit. Guys, if you're going to step out and serve the Lord Jesus, prepare to get bit. I'd love to tell you. That as you serve in the church and you're serving among Christians, that everything's going to be perfect and everybody will thank you and, and just, it'll just be all great. But that's not the way it is. You're going to get bit. But can we all learn something from Paul? When you're serving and you get bit, you don't go, oh, what next? Are you kidding me? A shipwreck and all this other kind of stuff. What next? What do we learn from Paul? Shake it off and just get back to work. <laughs> because, guys, it's gonna, we're going to get bit. It's going to happen. And you know what else is going to happen? People are going to unfairly assume things about you. People are going to unfairly judge you when you step out to serve. And look what happened to Paul. Here he is. He's got everything he's doing it with, with all the right heart. No selfish motive at all. And this happens to him. Something comes along and it happens to him. And they say, oh, he must be a murderer. There must be some sin in his life or that wouldn't be happening. That happens too, guys. Now, there's, there's two sides to that coin. If you're going to serve, those things are going to happen. Expect those things. Guys, as Christians, please hear me. Don't ever bite. And don't ever assume that you know what's going on. Don't ever judge. Because, guys, when we do that, we are wrong most of the time. I've, I have, I, I've heard it said. I've heard people, people talking around, they say, oh, well, man, did you hear about what's going on? Man, they, gotta have, they must be sin in their life. Oof. You don't know that. You don't know that. Let God deal with that. Paul will write to Titus and say, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Notice, to malign no one. No one. Zero instances where you are to malign someone, where you are to assume, where you are to spread any type of gossip whatsoever. Be peaceable, he says. Gentle, showing every consideration for all men. 
I love that. Showing every consideration. Notice the, the, the words every consideration for all men. That means guys give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Assume the best. But unfortunately in our flesh, we do the opposite. We assume the worst. The guys as Christians, that we can't be that. We have to uh, assume the best. Well, it continues in verse 7. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed, afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. They also honored us with many marks of respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. Here we're introduced to this man named Publius. We don't know anything else about him except what's recorded in these couple of verses. The leading man on the island, possibly the governor, something like that, but no doubt wealthy. But notice what it says about this man. It says that he welcomed us. He entertained us courteously. 276 strangers that just washed up on the beach. Can you imagine that initial conversation with his wife? Hey, honey, I just invited a few strangers over for dinner. I, what? What do you mean? I haven't had a chance to clean the living room and the, and the kitchen's a mess and everything you, you invited. How many? Um, 276. <laughs> But guys, this is, this is the perfect example, again, of something that we're called as Christians to do, and that is to be hospitable. Hospitality. Hebrews chapter 13 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Hospitality. Interesting when we just look at the, the Greek word there, philonexia, Philo, filio, where we get brotherly love, Philadelphia, nexia, strangers. That's what the word literally means. Treat a stranger as though you would. He's your brother. Brotherly love extended to strangers. And that's what happens here again. And I, I, I bring this back to the illustration of the, as the Lord brings those, whoever he might bring. And I don't know about you, but I pray all the time that God would bring them. When they come, we need to extend that brotherly kindness to them, even though they're strangers. Hospitality, making them feel welcome, entertaining them, courteously, embracing them. Yes, the Bible tells us that hospitality is a spiritual gift that is given to some, meaning that it's more in some. But guys, we're all called to be hospitable. And though it might be uncomfortable for us to step outside of our comfort zone in that, let me tell you, when you do, you will be blessed. Now, don't do it to get blessed, but you will be. Don't do it on the off chance it might be an angel, <laughs> but it could be. It's interesting. We see, we see the story of Abraham in the, in the Old Testament. One day, he's kicking back under a tree. It's hot. It's sunny. And three strangers are walking by. And he could have said, you know what? It's hot. And if they need something, I'd be glad to give it to them. I'm sure they'll ask if they need something. 
God tells us he got up and he ran to them. I mean, that's, that's the heart of someone who has hospitality. Go to them. Don't wait until they come to you. That's one thing I, I, I will say about Calvary Surprise. Every, every time a newcomer's dinner, I hear it all the time. Everybody said, man, this is so, place is so friendly. I got, I got my hand shook 25 times before I get through the parking lot. And that's great. But guys, we all play a part in that. If you happen to be sitting next to somebody or as you're going through, the, going through the, the lobby area or after service and you see somebody that maybe looks like this might be their first time, don't wait for them to ask. Go talk to them. Abraham did that that day. And you know who he ended up having for lunch that day over for lunch? Two angels and a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus. Now, chances are you're not going to have lunch with Jesus if you step out, however, Jesus does say, there's coming a day when he's going to be standing in front of a whole bunch of people just like us. And he's going to say, you know what? When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. When I was in prison, you visited me. And we're like, when did we ever do that? He says, whenever you did it to a least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Hospitality. And again, we don't, hospitality, just like with everything that we do, guys, the motive behind it is important. You're doing it in order to get something. Consider that your reward. But if you do it with the right heart, God will bless that. God will reward you. And in, and in his way, in his timing. But notice how it comes back to this man, Publius. He didn't do this for any particular reason. He did it only to bless, and he gets blessed. His father, he find, Paul finds out his father is sick, so he goes in. Paul lays hands on him, prays for him, and he's healed. Now, it tells us that the word traveled throughout the island, and all of the sick people then came, and it tells us that they were cured. Interesting, I don't want to get dogmatic about this, but there's two different Greek words used there. Paul, what Paul did with Publius's father, it says he was healed. The rest were cured. Some draw that distinction that Luke, being a doctor, was coming, and then he was using medicine to cure them of the other pieces. But let me ask, let me ask the question, whether it's because of laying on of hands and praying, or a doctor through medicine, somebody gets healed, who really heals? God does. Paul didn't heal, and Luke didn't heal. God did. And I make that a point because tonight, I mentioned tonight is our encounter. Tonight's our prayer night. And one of the things that we do on our monthly prayer nights is we pray for those who are, those who are hurting, those who are having a, a physical affliction. The Bible says if you are sick, call the elders. They anoint you with oil and pray with you. The elders will be there tonight. We would love that opportunity to anoint you with oil and to pray. By the way, we don't heal anybody. God heals, and he can choose to heal there. God still does that. He can choose to use doctors. He can, he, God, God, God is the one who helps me. We just simply go before God together with that. And I want to encourage, encourage, I invite you to come out tonight. It's, it's a special time as we seek the Lord together. Well, let's keep moving along here. We see that as their time on the island is finished here, they get on board another ship and 
Notice everything, they lost everything in the shipwreck. Here now these people on this island are now restocking them, giving them everything that they need to complete their journey. Verse 11, at the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. After we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Patoli. There we found some brethren who were and, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When he entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. Another quick Look at the map here. We can see, again, Paul finally makes it to Rome. Leaving Malta, they land at Syracuse, then, then going by the island, Cilicia there, Regium, on up to, to Patoli, staying there for a few days. Then word reaches the believers in Rome. They come down and meet Paul in this area in between at three taverns and forum of Appius. And then Paul eventually makes it to Rome, just as God promised. It wasn't the route that Paul no doubt thought he was going to take, but he's there just as God promised, faithful to his word. Tells us again that Paul now meets these brethren along the way. He thanks God. He takes courage. No doubt because he sees God's faithfulness, his faithfulness to his word, his faithfulness to the work of the church being spread because we're not, it's not recorded anywhere for us that any of the apostles actually came to this area at this time to plant churches. We know that Paul's never been here before, so the work of God is going out from all of these other places, and there's a group of believers all throughout this region and a large group in Rome. They come down to meet Paul, and he takes courage in this. Now, I love this part of the, of the whole story and as it unfolds for us. It tells us that Paul is allowed then to stay by himself. He's in a, in a rented apartment, if you would. He'll be there for two years. During that time, he'll write Philippians, uh, Colossians. He'll write to, to, to um, uh, let's see, Ephesians and also Philemon. Those four books Paul will write while in this rented apartment, note, chained to a Roman guard, chained to a Roman guard. Now, the way it was set up back then, they were on four-hour shifts. So every four hours, there was a new guard chained to Paul. You know how Paul looked at that? I got six people to witness to every day, and they can't get away from me. Paul was, like, super stoked that he had a captive audience that could not leave. And you know what the fruit of that was? Paul writing to the church in Philippi writes this in Philippians chapter one. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known, note, throughout the whole Praetorian guard. You gotta love that. <laughs> throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, and to everyone else. And note this too, 
and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Paul looked at the chains that he was wearing, chained to this guard as an opportunity for the gospel to be spread out. And he also recognized that because he was taking that stand and boldly proclaiming the gospel, others were hearing about it and they were encouraged to do the same thing. I just, I, I get this picture in my mind that, you know, the four hour shift and the new, new guard comes in. Some of them, after they're getting unhooked from Paul, are probably walking away going, <sighs> others walking away totally broken. Can you imagine the water cooler discussions? Hey, man, have you had your time with Paul yet? <laughs> you know? Yeah, man, he wore me out. Or, yeah, oh, praise the Lord, you know. Let me ask some of you here, what do you find yourself chained to? Are you chained, chained to a desk at work? Chained to a cubicle? Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you're chained in unemployment. What, it, what are you chained to? Maybe some of you have been or perhaps will be chained to a hospital bed. How do you look at that? Do you look at it as an opportunity for the furtherance of the gospel? That's what Paul did, and look what happened. And let me encourage you, those of you in your workplace, you might think, that, those, that, there's, that there, are none, there are no other believers in your entire workplace. Okay, if that's the case, you get eight hours a day to make a difference with all of them. Every interaction that you have. But I'm willing to bet you're not the only one. There's probably some that are around you, but they're too scared to come out. They're, too, they're, they're worried it might affect them, but they might take courage if they hear you, if they see you. way Paul looked at it. And he signs off his letter as he's, as he's saying farewell to the Philippian church. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, he says, all the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. Guys, when we are simply obedient, wherever God has us, we have no idea how far God can take that what God can do. We limit it so often based on the fact that we go, well, what can I do in my little cubicle? What could I do? What could Paul do? Just chained to a guard. What could Paul do? What can God do? Verse 17 tells us what Paul did almost immediately. It says, after three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the custom of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me, but there was no ground for putting me to death, or because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. They said to him, we have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor 
have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But, verse 22, we desire to hear from you what your views are concerning this sect, concerning Christianity, concerning this, this movement about Jesus being the Messiah. It is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. So, Paul calls the Jewish leaders of the area there in Rome together to meet with him. And he basically steps out and he says, now, in case you've heard this about me, but they said, we haven't heard anything about you. Nothing has come this way. But we are anxious. We, are, we would like to hear what you have to say about this sect because everything that we've heard is bad. Now, we might think that in today's age, we're the first to experience fake news. But it was going on back then. That's simply just making up stories, trying to persuade, trying to dissuade. And here we see that. Paul, Paul they said, we want to know what you have to say about this sect, these Christians, because we've heard nothing but bad things. You want to know some of the bad things that was spreading in the, about the church that early on? that they were, they were engaging in cannibalistic practices. Why would they say that? Because they gathered together for the, to eat the body of Christ, drink the blood of Christ in communion. Cannibal. And they call them love feasts, and they do this love feast with brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters in Christ. They called each other brother and sister. So they said these are incestuous love feasts that they have. That was the fake news of the day. What do you have to say about it, Paul? Guys, bottom line is, this, the more things change, the more things stay the same. If people don't know the truth, they're going to believe whatever they hear. We're nothing, we're, no, we're nothing but a gullible bunch. As human beings, we'll believe anything. If it's got one or two sources on the internet, it's got to be true. I read it. It was forwarded to me in an email. And the person who forwarded it to me has to know. I'm sure they checked it all out before they sent it to me. So we just believe it. Guys, let me just give you just, just one thing to take away, among others. But one thing, spend less time on the internet, spend more time in here. Because you can only believe a little bit of what's on the internet. You can believe everything that's in here. Well, again, the same is true today. The world doesn't know the truth about following Jesus, so they'll believe the fake reporting, the lies that are spread. And there are many, but I want to focus in on one because the church has a label today. And unfortunately, the true church is lumped in with the so-called church when it comes to this one label that's been propagated about us and that is that we are a bunch of hate-filled homophobes. Guys, the true church is not. The true church is a church of love. 
And what the world might call hate speech is not hate speech. If we love somebody enough to tell them the truth about their lifestyle, about their sin, and where that will leave, that's lead. That's not hate, that's love. But make no mistake about it, guys. As the true church, we cannot be homophobic. So I'm going to let you in on something. I'm hoping some of those that wash up on that beach are struggling with their sexual orientation so they can come here and they can find Jesus and he can set them free. But if we close off the door and we say this beach is closed to, to you if you're struggling in that area, guys, we're shutting the door on what Jesus wants to do. Unfortunately, there is a large, a large contingent out there that would like to, that, that propagates that. And we get lumped in with that. But guys, that's not the true church. That's not the heart of Jesus. The truth of the matter is, guys, we need to hate the sin, but love the sinner. And I, have, I had actually somebody ask me, well, called me out on that. Tell me in the Bible where it says that. God demonstrates his own love for us that while I was yet a sinner, he died for me. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. You can't have a broader statement that God loves the sinner. He sent his only son to die for us, but he hates the sin so much. He sent his son to die for us. Guys, that's, that's what we need to do. That's our heart that we need to have. Like I said, that's just one instant. That's one, that's one thing. But it tells us here how Paul deals with this, and this is how we deal with this. Notice he says, trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. I want a copy of that Bible study bad. <laughs> but notice, guys, here's, here's the deal. Bottom line. From, from the law of Moses, guys, the law, the Bible, the, we see this clearly. The law leads everyone, everyone to the fact that we need a savior. Because the law points it to all of us. It makes it evident to everyone that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. There's no way that we can fix that ourselves. We can't change that problem. We can't, we can't undo that ourselves. Paul writes in Romans chapter three, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law leads us to the, the fact that we need a savior, but the prophets point out what the savior did for us. Isaiah 53, one example. It tells us that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It pleased the father to crush him, to give him as a guilt offering for you and I. Second Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The sinless one becoming our sin. 
taking the full weight of our sin, the full penalty due us upon himself on the cross. A little over a week ago, I had the, the privilege again, along with several of you, to be in Israel and to be in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed, saying, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way for this sin problem of the world to be dealt with, let's do that. But there was no other way. So Jesus took the cup of wrath, the wrath of God. That was in the cup, the wrath of God for every sin ever committed, every one of your sins, every one of my sins, and he drank it completely, all the way to the dregs, completely paying the sin debt. That is what Paul is explaining to them and, and sharing with them. And guys, that's the truth that the world needs to hear. That's the truth. None of us can deny the fact that we're sinners. We can try, but we can't. None of us can deny the truth that there's nothing that we can do about it. But the truth that the world needs to hear is there is a way, but there's only one way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We have that. We know that. So again, I, I, Lord, bring him here. Bring him here so that we can share that with him. But it's important to know, even, even Paul didn't convince everyone. Again, that's the Holy Spirit's job. We just need to be faithful in doing what he's called us to do. Let's look real quickly Closing out the chapter, verse 24, some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having great dispute among themselves. Verse 30. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Here Luke stops his record. Uh, we don't have anything further in, in the Bible to tell us what became, what happened to Paul, other than little evidence here and there from his letters. Church history tells us that he would finally have his day before Nero, and no doubt, if anybody doubt that he shared the gospel with Nero, <laughs> tells us that, that he was released for a short period of time, had his freedom again, but then was later rearrested, this time not having uh, a, a, an apartment that he rented, but was actually put into the dungeon and would eventually be beheaded um, roughly 66, 67 AD. But I want to, in, in, a moment, in the moment that we have left here, I want to go back to something that was said here about what, as Paul was saying this, it says that those that heard him, it's categorized interesting in only two categories, some that were being persuaded and some that just outright rejected it. And the way that wording is there, the words that is used is they heard it, they understood it, and they rejected it. 
But it also says that those, the others, that were, they were being persuaded. And let me tell you that both of them are equally lost. Because it's not enough to be persuaded. There's a difference between conviction and conversion. And I want to speak to you today if that, if that describes you. And you'll know I'm talking to you because the Holy Spirit's going to reveal it to you. You've been persuaded. You have this idea and this understanding. Yeah, I believe all of that. That sounds good. But you've never taken that step to surrender your life to Jesus. You've never trusted in him and him alone. You've never surrendered your life to him. And I want to ask you why. What is holding you back? It's not enough to just come to a point in your mind. You've, you've maybe heard this before. It's a simple math equation, but five frogs are on a log. Three decide to jump off. How many are left? Five. Because deciding to jump off doesn't do anything. You got to jump. And if that's you today, and you've even maybe even made a decision that you've never followed through, I want to give you an opportunity to do that today because, guys, the stakes are huge. You don't know if you're going to ever have another opportunity for this. And every time it comes and you pass it by, your heart becomes harder. But also, if anyone is here today and you're in that camp where you've, you've got it, you understand, but you're, you've rejected it, you've pushed it away, I want to ask you, what is stopping you? Why would you do that? Is it because you're worried about your job? Is it because you're worried about what people will think? Is it because you're worried about relationships or whatever else it might be? Guys, this is eternity we're talking about. And let me tell you, you take that decision, you make that step today, you will never regret it. You will never regret it. The worship team's going to come up front and we're going to sing couple of songs in worship in response. And, and I want to, for all of us here as believers, guys, Jesus in the garden, again, he, that, 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 that decision that was made there finally, and then he went to the cross, he paid the full debt. We worship him for that. So I want to invite you to, 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 to stand. Would you stand? And let's, Let's do that. Let's enter into that time of just, just worship him for, for what he did as we prepare our hearts for communion. But I want to invite anyone who's here who the Holy Spirit is working on right now in your heart. And you want to make that decision today. You want to, you want to move past the decision into the full commitment of your life to Jesus, to know that your sins are forgiven, to know that if you were to die today, you would go to, go to heaven for it. You have eternal life. I want to invite you that while we sing, would you please come on up front here? I'll be up over here in the corner. Just like the opportunity to talk with you and to pray with you. You're worried about what people might think if you do. First of all, who cares? Because it's just between you and God. But if you're nervous about that, if you're, if you're worried about coming up by yourself, ask the person who's next to you to come up with you. They will. And I'll tell you the reaction of any true born-again believer in this room. We're going to rejoice. So I want to I want to invite anybody here if there's anybody in the overflow venue if you would make your way here while we sing and while we worship and for the rest of us let's let's prepare our hearts to celebrate communion together to celebrate what our Lord did for that, for us